there. I'm just going to use this time as a convenient, uh, I don't know if urge is the right word, but a, a pleading or a prodding to you that if you're unable to attend our Sunday schools, to be listening to the next few lessons that me and Joe are going to be giving on church membership and our duties towards one another, um, we just find it very important for our church to, to be in these things. So, Matthew chapter 15. I'd ask you to stand with me, please. Now, Christ, as you're standing, is entering in to the last year of His ministry at this point. And as He's entering into the last year of His ministry, we have controversy and contention continuing to ramp up in the life of our Savior. And over the next two weeks, we are going to see His... His contending with the Pharisees and the scribes over their biblical ethic. Okay, But Christ's goal is not just for the scribes and Pharisees to be put in their place, but for all of us here today as a church to learn how to correctly have a biblical ethic for our good. And so, I'm going to read from verses 1-20 through today, but we're going to be in verses 1-9. through This is God's Word. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You may be seated. Lord God, we come before you today and... God, you know, and I've confessed as a couple of my brothers today, God, I'm nervous about this text because I believe it's so important for our local church life. But God, your word speaks so clearly that, God, I have confidence that no matter what is said here, we can take away the key points of this text. I ask you today that that you would take what I've prepared as weak and as silly as it might be, God, and you would multiply it, that you'd make it effective and fruitful. I pray that Jesus Christ would preach today. 
that He would fill me with His Spirit, that I might do uh, far above all that I can ask or think, and that You would be pleased to work in my weakness. Lord, help us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we see in Matthew 15, in particular verses 1-9, through what we should be primarily looking at here is the fact that Jesus is continuing to act as mediator between God and man, specifically in the role of a prophet. That He is preaching to people what is true and honorable about God and what God desires and what God commands of us. And Jesus really in this text is acting as a reformer of the Jerusalem people. Not the Jerusalem people only, but the people of Israel in particular. As they had amassed to themselves all sorts of different traditions and commandments that were not found in the Word of God, that were contrary to it, Jesus comes and when He contends with them, He is tearing away all of their false notions and conceptions about what is pleasing to God and giving them truth. And what our text has here today is the doctrine of liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience. Now, this doctrine, uh, I cannot overestimate how important it's been in my life as a pastor and as a church member in framing how we ought to deal with one another, in guiding interpersonal conflict within the church, and it's extremely important. Jesus reforms our attitude, and notice that it's radically about biblical sufficiency. Right? Christ does not want us to live on our own thoughts, on our own attitudes, coming up with what we think is right in our own hearts, but rather, He points the Pharisees, the scribes, always back to the Word of God. Now, this was not only the Reformation of Jesus Christ, but also in the Protestant Reformation, you might be shocked to know that this was an extremely important topic. So important that John Owen, when he writes a little treatise about why the Reformation mattered... And why the Reformation had to take place? The first instance and why the Reformation had to happen was the sufficiency of the Word of God, but the second was liberty of conscience. Now, it's kind of shocking to think about. We might think liberty of conscience is important, but according to John Owen, who's not infallible, obviously, but according to him, this was the second purpose that the Reformation was given. The Roman Catholic Church, like the Pharisees, had amassed a bunch of traditions and doctrines on top of the Word of God that they bound people's consciences to. And the Reformation had the goal of tearing away those traditions made by men, those man-made doctrines, and trying to go back to biblical sufficiency. It's important that we are always reforming to the truth of The Scripture. And if we don't have this doctrine, liberty of conscience, which I hope to explain to you today, if we don't have it tattooed on our brains, it's a vivid image, I know. If we don't have it always in front of us, we are always in danger of falling into the kind of Pharisaism that we see in this text. So it's important for us to understand these concepts. The central idea here is that Jesus rebukes strongly the scribes and Pharisees for elevating the traditions of man over and above the law of the living God. Now, the purpose of this text, why did Matthew write it? It's so that we would know this doctrine. 
that we would see it as true and beautiful and that we would be warned against the danger of legalism, that of elevating man's laws to the status of divine status. So, three points today. We, you must, you must know the doctrine of Christian liberty. Second, you must be warned of legalism. And third, you must be encouraged by the freedom that we have in the law of Jesus Christ. Okay, so one at a time here. You must know the doctrine of liberty of conscience. And I've struggled all week trying to frame how this would be most helpful to us. And I think it would be most helpful that we just have the doctrine stated. What is liberty of conscience? And it might not be any surprise to some of you that I think that the best formulation in human words of this doctrine is found in the 1689, paragraph 21, or I'm sorry, chapter 21 and paragraph 2. Listen to these words. Liberty of conscience is this. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to His Word or not contained in it. Okay? God alone is Lord of the conscience. And the first thing, and try to explain this doctrine to you today, is that it has to do with our consciences. The conscience, biblically speaking, is that inner courtroom of the mind. Okay? When you do something that you're convicted of sin, your conscience is the mechanism that convicts you and says you're guilty of sin before the Lord. Or your conscience approves of what you do. When you have a good work that you do, and you remember, hopefully, what the Bible says about to do that good work, your conscience approves that that is a work acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. The conscience, then, is that internal mechanism that convicts us of sin, that judges right or wrong, guilty or not guilty. And this doctrine says that God alone is the Lord of your conscience. God alone is Lord of our conscience. Nothing else is Lord of your conscience. Your scrupulous neighbor is not the Lord of your conscience. Other church members are not the Lord of your conscience. Your pastor is not the Lord of your conscience. The Pope is not the Lord of your conscience. The government is not, cannot be the Lord of your conscience. God alone has that divine right and prerogative to tell you what is right and wrong, guilty or not guilty. Now... That means, because God alone is Lord of our conscience, it means, the next statement is true as well, that He has left us free from all the doctrines and commandments of men. Okay? Now, I want to try to be clear here because it can be confusing to us sometimes. I'm not saying that when you pass by the speed limit sign that says 55 miles per hour on the way to Finlay, you should say, well, God alone is Lord of the conscience. I'll go as fast as I want to go because the Word of God doesn't say anything about speed limits. Okay? Again, the language is important. He's the Lord of the conscience. Okay? Other men might constrain us to obedience in a number of different ways. They might compel our bodies to be in slavery. But they can never be the Lord of our conscience. 
They can never tell us that this is acceptable before God and this is unacceptable before God because I say so. Okay? God alone must be the Lord of our conscience. We may be compelled by action, but our freedom lies in our consciences. We put ourselves under the government, but they can never constrain us to believe something is right or wrong of necessity. Now, we also notice that this freedom is from the doctrines and commandments of men, and it notice the two words or phrases that we have that are anyway contrary to his word or not contained in it. And I just want to give us a couple of examples of that in the word of God. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. As we see commandments of men that are contrary to the word of God, that we are free from believing these doctrines. And Paul writes to Timothy that the latter times, that is the time from Jesus' death till His second coming, are going to be characterized by these kind of doctrines. Notice, now the Spirit says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves, notice the strong language, to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now notice what those teachings are. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we can see here that the Apostle Paul is directing the mind of Timothy to know that in these later times there's going to be heretics. They're teaching doctrines of demons. And Paul feels so strongly about this that if they're requiring abstinence from food, abstinence from marriage that God has given in goodness, it's contrary to His Word, it's a teaching of demons, according to Paul. It's not a light thing. It's not a small thing. Or... Even things not contained in the Word of God. That is, things indifferent. Alright? So if we live our lives, and by necessity, all of us live our lives and we have certain scruples that we have. We look to the Word of God for what we know is right or wrong, but there are certain things that we have particular maybe household rules about. Maybe we don't allow anything but PG movies to enter the movie screen of our house. Perhaps we... Have a scruple that if you're a, uh, a woman, that you only wear a dress that comes down past the knee or something like that. These are scruples that we have that are not necessarily contained in the Word of God. And Romans 14, if you'll turn there with me, talks very specifically to this very issue. This doctrine tells us, once again, our consciences are free from the doctrines and commandments of men, and it's even according to things that are indifferent. Notice, verse 1, As for one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while another, the weak person eats only vegetables and give you a little context here this is probably talking about a Jew and Gentile difference of opinion 
where the Jewish people, their minds and their consciences being newly converted are so attached to the idea that they're living in a Roman culture where almost all of the meat sold in the marketplace was probably sacrificed to an idol at some place in some way, shape, or form. And so they refused, in their own scruple, in their own conscience, I'm not going to eat meat because it'll save me from partaking in the idol worship of the temple. While others that had a more free conscience towards this, said an idol is nothing in this world. And therefore, even though this is sacrificed to an idol, I am not worshiping that idol, and I can freely partake of the meat that is offered and sold in the marketplace. Now, Paul says both of these exist in the Roman church, both of these scruples, but notice verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. We are to have gracious judgment with one another. Because in things indifferent where the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn. We are to be free in our consciences. The scruple of my neighbor does not impact my own life. Does that make sense? I told myself I wasn't going to ask that question today. But I did. And this freedom, I hope we see, is not an absolute freedom. It is not a freedom that I can, through the dictates of my own heart, and whatever feels right to me, I am free to do that. Rather, the conscience is always and forever bound by God alone, primarily what He has said in His Word. Okay? The doctrine stated is simply that. God alone is Lord of the conscience, left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. And I want us to see that this is the express purpose of our text today. Look with me. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. The context, as we've already said, the growing fame of Jesus Christ and notice that his fame is growing to such an extent that we see in verse 1 the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem making a perhaps 60 to 80 mile walk through the Jerusalem wilderness to come to Jesus Christ his fame is growing greatly here they travel all the way up probably to spy him out and find some way that they can They can contravene his teaching to get his fame from growing in some way. It's especially true if we believe, and I do, that this was the last year of our Savior's life. Even though Matthew doesn't record it, John records that Christ has been back and forth to Jerusalem a number of times. And this is probably directly after the time in John chapter 7 when he was at the feast and he cried out at the feast that he is the living water. He is the light of the world. The Pharisees travel up in this context, to try to trap Christ. And notice what they do. They attack Him for breaking the traditions of the elders by not washing. Now, I find this absolutely fascinating. As these men travel up to try to trap Jesus Christ, the primary thing that our author notes to us is not that they find some doctrinal error that they can point to the Word of God and said, see, you're against the Word of God on this. Rather, They see his disciples and they jump on the fact that they're not washing their hands before they eat. Now, where does this fit in our discussion of Christian liberty of conscience? 
Well, the Bible nowhere tells us that we must wash our hands before we eat. Now, is it a good thing to wash your hands before you eat? We might say yes, right? It's a good thing. Can we say with a good conscience to not wash your hands before you eat is guilty of sin before God? Say no. Why? Because the Word of God doesn't say so. But I want us to understand something of the Pharisees' uh, argument here. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 gives the same account, but has a little more wording to it. Gives us a fuller picture of what's going on here. Mark chapter 7, specifically, verses 2 and 3 and 4. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, unwashed. Notice this little parenthetical statement by Mark. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly according to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, we might ask why the Pharisees had these traditions. Well, they weren't just made up out of thin air, okay? If we're familiar with the Old Testament, God required many ceremonial kinds of washings, especially for the priests that were engaged in sacrifice, that they would be ceremonially clean when they entered into the temple to worship God. Okay? God, in the Old Testament, had a cleanliness code in in Leviticus chapter 17 and onward that required the people to be ceremonially pure. And the Pharisees here, they extended that what the Pharisees were good at, weren't they? They took God's law and they said, well, just in case people will break this law, we're going to add a thousand different laws to it to make sure and guard the fence so that they don't break these other laws. And that's what they did here, right? So you had to wash to go to the temple. You had to be ceremonially clean if you came in contact with a dead body or something like that. But we're going to add to that. Every time you eat, you have to go through a ceremonial cleansing ceremony. You have to wash your couches. You have to wash cups and pots and pans and all these different kinds of things. And the the Pharisees, in their mind, thought God commanded ritual washings of the priests to take away uncleanness. But we are so righteous that we're going to go beyond God's law, add to God's law, and wash our hands as a religious act before every meal. But Jesus, notice how Jesus confronts them here. They're trying to bind the consciences of the disciples, convict Jesus Christ of sin for breaking these traditions. Notice the language of Christ in Matthew chapter 15. He says to them, very pointedly and strongly, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, what do we notice? He doesn't bring up the washing of hands at all at this particular moment. We're going to see that brought up next week. But Jesus wants to impress upon their minds their hypocrisy so much that your traditions that you have amassed on top of God's law, you've put so much weight in them that you've actually broken very, very serious laws in the Old Covenant. He quotes from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. And 21.17. Now, he does this to show the seriousness. Notice the language he says, For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, what a terrible 
contrast that Jesus Christ gives to these men. God said this, but you say something totally contrary to it. This is the condition of the scribes and Pharisees. Their great sin, adding to God's law. God said something, but you have the boldness, the audacity to say something totally contrary to God's Word and expect people to obey it as if it was God's Word. It's very shocking. He shows them the utmost seriousness of the offense. They've broken the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. And added to that, is another precept in the law that says if you don't honor your father and mother, you have to die the death. You must be put to death because of it. He does this to show them this is God's serious law that if any man broke it, it's capital punishment that is deserved to be paid. And yet, your traditions make void, make empty, worthless the commandment of God. Now, This can be a little confusing when we read through it, but it's not as confusing as we might think. Notice how, what traditions made void the Word of God here. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or mother. Now, what's going on here is that there's a very strong tradition, and it's actually kind of shocking if you read through the Jewish literature, if somebody merely said with their mouth that this thing is given to God as a sacrifice or as an offering to God, it had legal binding authority to it. And sometimes there's even recorded cases in Jewish law where a debt, uh, a debt collector, somebody that had a debt owed, would go to the person that owed them the debt, and that person would be unwilling to pay, And that person would just say, well, what you have, what you owe me, is given to God. And so that person, by law, would have to give up what they had to the temple, right? It was no longer theirs to have. Now, this is exactly what they did with mother and father. The law said you must honor your father and mother. And that had the idea behind it of financial responsibility, okay? You have to provide for your father and mother, But the Pharisees taught these people that if you just say the words merely, you don't even have to give it, that what you've gained from me, instead of providing for you financially, that money's a gift to the Lord. The parents had no right to contest that, no right to bring it up, because giving it to the Lord was a greater thing than loving their parents and giving it to them. Now, this principle that they had built up, this tradition, it made totally void the word of God where it took the people out of the context of even being able to obey God's word. Honor father and mother now meant nothing because of these traditions. It's a rather shocking thing. And we end by noticing the extremely strong language of Jesus Christ. This is not a light thing to him. It's not a small thing to change God's laws. Notice what he says. Verse 7, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I tell you, there's no other way to take this particular verse than to say that when we add to God's law our traditions, our own thinking, make void God's word by our own precepts and scruples, notice that Jesus says that we worship God 
in vain when we do it. Now, we might look at people who add to God's law that are Pharisees in some way, shape, or form, that have all sorts of scruples, that they bind other men's conscience, and we might say that they seem like the most religious men, the most scrupulous. But Jesus said when we do these things, when we don't go to the Bible for our ethic, but go to our own thinking, our own traditions, then we worship God in vain. And our heart is not near to God. Because the heart near to God goes to the Bible in every question of ethic. Every question of ethic. Now, he quotes Isaiah 29.13. And Isaiah was prophesying to the people of his own day that their heart was far from God. And they taught the doctrines of men. But Jesus equates this with the Pharisees of his time. That Isaiah was not only prophesying to his own people of his own day, but this was going to be characteristic of apostate people throughout the church age. So, I want us to see here the terrible, terrible state of the Pharisees. The terrifying state that they were in. That by adding traditions and commandments and elevating them to the status of divine, that they actually were accused of false worship, vain worship, and making void the Word of God. This is a terrible place to be. But we can fall into the same error. We can fall into the same error. So we must not only know this doctrine and have it on our minds that the Bible teaches that we cannot ever add to God's laws and bind other men's consciences to it. You also must be warned about personal legalism in your own heart and life. We must be. And the reason for this is because we're prone to it. I'm not talking to any individual in particular in here. I'm talking to every individual in here. Legalism. There's three things that I have in my mind that we would be warned from from this text. First is that legalism produces self-righteousness in the heart. The Pharisees, we know, were masters of this, weren't they? They were self-righteous. Instead of seeking the righteousness that God gives freely through Jesus Christ, they were seeking to amass their righteousness but they knew that they couldn't keep God's Word perfectly because no man can. They knew they were guilty before God, and so the natural response of the legalist is I'm going to create my own laws, my own things that I can actually keep and pretend that this is what God actually is pleased with. They had an elaborate system of do's and don'ts that they added to true godly worship that made them appear very scrupulous, very righteous before men. But they so exalted these man-made traditions as we've already seen that they actually taught other people by these traditions that you can violate the fifth commandment. You don't even have to pay attention to it anymore. Now, I question bringing this, but I think it's very true and good for us to think about. I think that we often think conservative people, people with a conservative mindset, are more typically tend towards this, the sin that we see in the Pharisees. And that's true to some degree. But I want us to see that no matter our mindset, liberal or conservative, that we all tend towards self-righteousness and creating our own laws. Typically, the more progressive-minded person, typically, will sin in this way by thinking by their own thoughts, by trusting in their own logic and their own minds that they can come up with a good biblical ethic where the conservative tends, and where the scribes and Pharisees fell into, is saying, well, we've done this for so long, 
We've done it forever, so it must be right. Right? I've gone to a church where the women must wear, must wear jean skirts, wear white tennis shoes, and we've done it for so long, it's been a habit for 50 years, therefore it must be right. And we must beware, no matter what our style of thinking is on this, that both of them tend towards self-righteousness and producing something that makes vain the laws and the words of God. Makes vain the laws and the words of God. If we are left to our own brothers and sisters, to our own thinking, if our mind, again, is not stamped and seared with the fact that God's law is the only way to know good and true righteousness, We are going to become self-righteous. We're going to become judgmental about everything. And I've seen it in the church. We become judgmental about uh, whether we homeschool our kids or whether we don't homeschool our kids. We become judgmental about what TV shows are allowed into our houses. Become judgmental about child rearing and what is acceptable there. Even if the Word of God doesn't have any explicit things to say about those kids. Issues, And we bind our brothers' and sisters' consciences to it. And we judge them. We elevate our own scruples above the law of God and judge other people because they don't agree with us. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 18. And I give a few examples there, brothers and sisters, but it's just totally ubiquitous. With everything we do, we tend to elevate our own way of life above the law of God and judge other people for not living exactly how we live. Luke 18, we know this text, I know you do. Verse 10. Now I'm going to start in verse 9. He also told this parable. Notice, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I want you to notice that those two things always go together. They always go together. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Notice verse 12. He brings his own unbiblical scruples into the picture. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Rather than the other. And I'd ask you, the, the prayer of the Pharisee here, is this characteristic of your own heart? Is it characteristic of your own heart? When you think of your brothers and sisters... Do you say, I thank God I'm not like those other people. I thank God that I have scruples that are, that are more godly in my mind, even though I can't find them in the Bible. We have to be aware of this. This text calls us to repent of our self-righteousness and to flee to Christ who shows us true righteousness. This legalism, I want us to see it destroys ourselves when we have this ethic, but it also destroys others. Legalism destroys other people. And that's why we need to be warned of this as well. When we exalt our own laws, our own thinking above the Word of God, what it does is it makes the righteous sad and the wicked glad. It's something I like to hold in my mind. Now, I know that 
when we come to Christ, often our consciences are tender to our own sin. And if somebody's been truly converted, they're, they're sensitive to rebuke from their brothers and sisters. They know that they're self-deceptive. And often we walk in sins and we don't know it. And we want our brothers and sisters to reveal those sins to our heart that we might live good and right before the Lord. But when we exalt our own scruples and our own biblical or unbiblical laws above the Bible, we destroy other brothers. We make them think, well, I must not be as holy as that person because look how they live in their lives. They, they only watch G-rated movies in their home. They must be much better Christians than I am. But we must be careful of this. The Pharisees in our text, they not only destroyed themselves through their own self-righteousness, notice that they tried to bind and bind the hearts and the consciences of the disciples and tried to discourage them from what they were doing, even though they were living free in Christ, following Christ. They attempted to discourage them in their path. And that's what self-righteousness, that's what legalism does to us. Now, few practical truths here. In our church life, this is so important. If we're elevating our scruples, what's going to happen is you're going to make other people walk on eggshells around you because they don't want to offend you in this particular way because of the scruple that you've set up above yourself. I remember being in a church that was King James only, for example, and said that King James Bible is the only Bible, it's the only Word of God. And I know somebody in that church that in And Christian love gave somebody that was not converted a new King James Version of the Bible. And the response was, oh, it's not even the Word of God. shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have given that to them. As if it was a negative thing. These things are all over the place, brothers. And I could multiply examples. It produces not only just walking on eggshells, but it produces a fear in our brothers and sisters of confessing sin to one another. Right? I'm afraid to open up to that brother or sister because I know that they think that they're so much better and they're going to, they're going to dig into me and they're not going to show Christian love. And it can ultimately lead to a loss of assurance that I must not be a Christian because I do not practice these things or because I allow certain things that the Bible says nothing about into my life. Now this guiding question must be with us. As we're warned... Not to be legalistic towards other people. Whatever sin we're thinking of, when we're thinking of brothers and sisters and thinking, should they be living this way? We should always be thinking in our mind, is this plainly stated in the Word of God? If it's not plainly stated, if the Bible doesn't show it to be sin explicitly, then we ought to be very, very careful about making any judgments in our mind and especially letting it come out of our mouth and making brothers or sisters Sad because of it. Thirdly, we ought to be warned of legalism because it incites God's anger. It incites God's anger. I mean, think of the words that we had just read in Matthew chapter 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What a terrifying judgment to be given. But this is what it does. When we elevate our own laws above the Word of God, when we exalt our own traditions and scruples and condemn others, we worship God in vain. Verses 8 and 9, I think, are the most terrifying part of our text today. 
Now, this sentiment is repeated in Isaiah in chapter 8, where Isaiah writes, And when they say to you, Inquire of mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, or they have no light in them. Now, I'd ask you that. When we think about how we're to live the Christian life, and we're directing brothers and sisters, how do we live the Christian life? Are we going to the teaching and the testimony? Or are we going to other sources? Or are we relying on those things instead of the plainly stated word of God? Brothers and sisters, this text is given that we, so that we would be warned about all of our natural inclination to legalism and judgmentalism. The fall of Adam and the desire of Adam to be like God still exists within our sinful flesh. It's been muted and it's been killed by Jesus Christ, but it's still, thr- it's still um, like a chicken with its head cut off. It is dead finally and fully, but we still see the actions of it in our flesh. And we must be careful to put it to death continually. We must take warning that legalism and the refusal to see God's law as sufficient, God's Word as sufficient, it destroys ourselves, it destroys our fellow church members, and it destroys our relationship with God. We must have this in our mind. We must take this text as seriously as Jesus Christ preached it in this text. But there is not only great warning here for all of us, but I believe there's great encouragement and freedom in this doctrine. Great encouragement that I have is three. First, it gives us confidence in the Scripture's sufficiency. It gives us confidence in that. I don't have to worry about what the psychologist might say about something or other or what's going to come out new in the newspaper that might add to our biblical ethic. Rather, this text tells me I can look to the Word of God, I can hope in the Word of God knowing that it has everything in it for all my life and all of my godliness. 2 Timothy 3.16, a text we've quoted many, many times in the last few months, I want us to notice the the depth and the clarity of this statement. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for how many good works? Every good work. When we think about what is a good work that God would like me to do, it is contained in the pages of Holy Scripture. He perfectly outlines everything that is good and holy and acceptable to Him. When we think about, is this sin? We must have in our mind, tattooed in our brain, go to the Bible to see if it's sin. Don't go to my emotions. Don't think of the scruples of my neighbor. Go to the Word of God. This is a very practical help for us. I look to the Scripture alone to determine the ethical standards of my life and the life of my church. I don't have to question in my mind whether a brother or sister really is in sin or not. Does the Bible explicitly tell me they are? And if they do, I know. 1 John chapter 3 tells us sin is lawlessness. It's a refusal to submit to the written Word of God, the law of God. It gives us 
freedom that we can be confident in the Scripture's sufficiency, but it also gives freedom from other legalists, which we were bound to find in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own churches. The legalist needs these other laws, as we've already told, right? As we've already said. The legalist in his mind believes commonly that they can, they can gain God's favor by their works. And so they need other laws. Laws that they can actually keep. Laws that will settle their conscience down. But the Gospel has freed us to go after obedience to God's standard. Knowing that this side of eternity, I'm never going to obey God's law as I ought to obey it. But because the Gospel, because Jesus Christ has taken all of my sin on the cross and He lived perfectly under God's law for me, I can now obey the law, not as a covenant that sits over my head that says, do this and you will live, but rather I can obey God's law imperfectly, but striving for it, going after it. Is this not what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3? Philippians chapter 3, the Gospel is the reason why Paul reaches forward to God's commandments. Notice, if you're turning there, if not, that's fine. Verse 12 of Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this, that is, perfection that will be seen in the resurrection, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Paul presses on to make ethical perfection his own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Because Christ has died, He's made me His own. He has freed me from the condemnation of the law. I am free to go forward in obedience to that law. I need not be afraid like the legalist is. That I can't obey this law, so I must invent other ones. I can go after God's pure, complete, holy law, knowing I'm forgiven and striving for it, and loving God's law. Loving God's law. We have freedom from legalists. We have freedom from them imposing these demands on our conscience. And this is explicitly stated to us in Colossians chapter 2. And we're, we're wrapping up. Colossians chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read the latter part of this section because I think it's the most helpful. Um, Notice in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? That is, unbiblical regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according, notice, to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. Isn't that true of the Pharisees? Everybody looked at them and said, look how holy, look how great they are because of all these man-made scruples they have. But, notice, they are of no value of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Man can be scrupulous. He can appear extremely religious because of all of these rules he has amassed on top of himself. But he's still is doing things for his own pleasure, his own glory, and not submitting to Christ. And we have freedom from this. When other people try to constrain our conscience to obey their scruples, we can know in our mind, I am free to not offend them. And I can be nice in front of them and not do the thing that they don't like, but my conscience is freed. 
I do not have to submit my conscience to their unbiblical scruples. I do not have to feel guilty before God because of it. And sometimes, like Jesus Christ in this text, we are free not to submit to their scruples. We do not have to hide, I'm going to say this boldly, we don't have to hide the alcohol in our house for fear that somebody else is going to see it. Okay? Jesus Christ, when these Pharisees came, He didn't say, oh, quick, wash your hands. We don't want to offend them. Jesus Christ is often bold about His pure obedience to the Lord. Now, does that mean that there are not occasions where we do hide some things? Perhaps. But... We are free from legalism. We are free from the the tyranny of the weaker brother over us. And we must live before God's law, not boasting about our liberty, not despising the weaker brother, but, but living in freedom. And thirdly, we have freedom of our conscience towards God. When our heart delights in the law of God, when we see the Word of God is sufficient and frames all of our life around it, we can have a growing confidence that our worship is in spirit and truth. These Pharisees could have no assurance that all of their scruples that they worship God, they worshiped Him in vain. But if we have a mindset on the Bible's sufficiency on how we worship and how we live our lives, we can have a growing confidence that the way that we live our lives is actually acceptable to God. There's not a hidden law out there somewhere that I might be breaking that I'm unaware of. He's plainly stated it. In his word. And so, in conclusion today, my prayer is that this would be helpful for us and would frame our church life together, that we would always have in our mind, in our personal lives, and with one another, that the Bible and the Bible alone says what's right and wrong and binds our consciences in all things. That we'd grow to love one another in these ways. Um, God, as we think of the Lord's table today, the freedom that we have is purchased by the death of Jesus Christ. He has set us free. Do you know that before Christ came, and we were in Adam, 